Good morning. This morning's scripture is from the book of Acts, first chapter, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of, of, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Our Father, holy and perfect God, great is your name. You provide all that we need. We call you Father as you told us to. We look to you for guidance. You give it. We need correction. You give that as well. Your love is perfect. Help us to know that. We seek your will as a church body. We listen for the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be still. Help us to be quiet. Help us to quiet our thoughts and our desires and to seek your will in each area of our lives. We pray now like for childlike hearts, hearts that respond to your love, hearts that push us forward into a relationship with you. It is only when we put you first in our lives that we can be fully blessed, that we can be complete in this life, content with what you provide us, filled with grace and overflowing with peace, a peace we can share with others. Lord, help us to become more Christ-like in all that we do, looking to spread the gospel to everyone we meet, speaking words that you give to us, not of our own wisdom, but your words of love. Lord, it is only by your sacrifice that we can be here this morning, that we can worship you, 
that our hearts have been changed, that we can look forward to an eternity in your presence. No more pain, no more sin, pleasure in all that we do and all that we see for eternity. Lord, we long for that day and thank you for this new life that we have through Jesus. Lord, we ask now for your healing touch on this body of believers gathered here this morning. We ask for your miraculous touch on all of those who ask to be healed in Jesus' name. Lord, we also ask for you to be with Duncan this morning. We ask that you would give him the words to speak to us today. We ask that you would strengthen him in mind and body and that he could speak boldly and spirit-led words to us. And we ask that our heart would be open, that your message, Lord, is delivered to us and that we accept it. May our lives be changed this morning. May we be empowered by your Holy Spirit to be the people that you made us to be, loving you and serving each other each day and at all times, and doing all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we continue through our trek through the book of Acts up to this point in chapter 1. Luke, who is the author of this book, along with the gospel by his own name, has given us a review of the last days that Jesus and the apostles shared together, which culminated in his ascension to his throne in heaven. In the midst of his review, Luke has also introduced the major theme of his book in 1.8, which is the mission of the church to Judea, Samaria, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the text that you heard Andy read today, we have Luke's record of the apostles' preparation. This is a season of preparation as they get ready for the gargantuan event in church history, of course, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Today, we meet the apostles and other devout followers of Jesus, right where Jesus told them to go. Before his ascension, he told them to go back to Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that this group of about 120 people, after the ascension, had been staying in an upper room. They may have been there for several days at this point. Because this text is really a bridge text, it's preparing us for something else, the temptation, if you're reading it in your, in your devotions, might be to kind of skip over it again. I would advise against that, because there are some really important and interesting things in the text that, that Andy read. Before we see the most important truth, which I think will become self-evident, Luke identifies, for the last time in Scripture, by name, the 11 remaining apostles. He also informs us that this larger group of 120 includes Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. These would be Jesus's biological brothers. For Luke to explicitly list these people as his brother, when he also speaks about the other brothers, clearly indicates that this is not in the broader spiritual sense, this is in the familial sense. Also for Luke to list them after Mary, the mother of Jesus, is intentional as well. These were members of Jesus' biological family who are now his followers. And we know from Mark 6, verse 3, who these people were. When Jesus of Nazareth, 
is in Nazareth, someone in Nazareth asks about Jesus skeptically and says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is why Protestants have always identified these men as Jesus' biological brothers. We also believe that this James spoken of here probably wrote the New Testament book of James, and this Judas here probably wrote the New Testament book of Jude. Now, we know from John's Gospel that early on in Jesus' ministry, his brothers, these familial brothers, were not followers of Jesus. They were skeptics. Yet, at some unrecorded point that we don't have access to, they recognized their brother is the Messiah. And we know by their willingness to be part of this select and potentially persecuted group, by this time, they were not only his followers, they were prepared to die for him. In verse 14, we do see the most important bit of preparation this group was doing. Luke writes, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, these women that Luke mentions here are almost certainly some of the same women who were among the first witnesses to the resurrection. Jesus had several devout woman, women followers who also, we know from Luke chapter 8, helped finance his ministry. Now, we need to notice that even though Jesus at this point has promised the Holy Spirit and told these disciples to wait for him, they weren't in this upper room just passing the time. They weren't playing parcheesi or cribbage or board games. They weren't in the frame of mind that says, well, I wonder when the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised, is going to come. Do you suppose I'd have time to do thus and so or this or what? No, they were promised to the Spirit. And in response to the promise, they respond by praying earnestly and fervently. And it's very important for us to know that this is the consistent impact the promises of God have on people in Scripture, and it's also the impact they should have on us. We see this over and over in Scripture, but maybe one of the better ones is in Revelation 22, in some of the final words of the Bible. John, speaking of Jesus, says, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. There's the promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There's the prayer. The promises of God should always stimulate and act like gasoline to our prayers. Think of it like the dad who, out of the blue one day, promises his 10-year-old boy he's going to buy him a bicycle. Okay, that kid doesn't then march up the stairs and sit on the end of his bed and say, now I'm patiently waiting. No, <laughs> the promise ignites a burning desire within him. And so he then incessantly asks his father about it. When we find a promise in Scripture, the right response is to pray in faith for it to be fulfilled, believing that God will grant it to us. Luke reveals two qualities of this kind of expectant praying. First, in, in verse 14, the disciples were in one accord. That does not mean they all climbed into a Honda. <laughs> Secondly, they were devoting this. It's an old joke. It's okay. It's okay. I, it's okay. Second, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer, he uses this same phrase in Luke chapter 42 when he writes that after Pentecost, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Luke's point in using that phrase is that this kind of praying that they were doing in that upper room wasn't occasional, it wasn't leisurely, it wasn't laid back. There was a flaming intensity to this prayer, genuine, white-hot fervency. This was not praying that was done after they'd managed to do everything else they wanted to do that day in the time left over. No, this was not praying done in their spare time. This wasn't a prayer of convenience. This was impassioned crying out to God in response to the promise. Jesus had promised them a helper who would empower them, carry out their worldwide mission, who would give them courage to face the opposition that Jesus said they certainly would, uh, they would come against, who would remind them of what Jesus had said to them and would guide them into all truth. Think that might have been important to have. I mean, they'd been promised the Spirit. They wanted him. They knew they needed him, and they were going to have him, and they were going to exert whatever energies they needed to do to get him to come. And what they could do was to pray, and that's exactly what they did. A second quality of their praying was that they were praying in one accord. Now, praying in one accord is consistent with praying passionately. This is because praying in one accord means first, they were all praying together, corporately. They knew the exponential power of corporate prayer, implied in verses like Deuteronomy 32 30. There Jesus or Moses says that one mark of God's work among his people is that with his help, one will chase a thousand, two will chase ten thousand. That's not one will chase a thousand, two will chase two thousand. No, two will chase ten thousand. Okay? That tells us there is exponential power unleashed from God when we pray together, asking God for things on our behalf. In this upper room, these people are praying in one accord together. It wouldn't have occurred to these people to go off to their own little corners, their own little private space, and share their own private meditation to God. They understood they need to be praying with one accord. That's what happens when you're really intense about something. This also means that they were praying in absolute lockstep with one another. So it wasn't just they were praying together. They were praying with the same heart. They all wanted the same thing, and they all wanted it badly. This was like a rifle bullet prayer, not a shotgun blast prayer. There's laser beam-like shared focus of their praying here. They were using different words, they had different personalities, but their desires were being expressed uniformly as they cried out to God for the same thing and with the same spirit. As we've said before, and as we'll see many, many times in the book of Acts, Luke presents this unbreakable pattern. And it's seen in that before God does anything of significance in Acts, it is nearly always in answer to the prayer of his saints. Today in the church, in the evangelical church in America, we have more money, we have more technology, we have better biblical scholarship, we have marketing research and sociology, all of these tools of modernity that help us carry out our tasks. And yet, as we know, the church in America is shrinking along with its influence. And although there are doubtless many factors behind that kind of decline, surely one of them is the decrease in the prayer ministry in many churches. Though there is a prayer going on in small group ministries and other ministries, and that's all very good. The regular gatherings just for the purpose of calling on God for prayer are a shadow 
of what they once were in many evangelical churches. The typical attendance at an evangelical church prayer meeting when they're only doing prayer is 5% of the church. Again, doubtless many reasons for this lack of emphasis on prayer, but surely one of them is, is we're just, we just don't think it works very well. It just doesn't have much effect. Uh, the disciples were not convinced of that lie. God does not respond to our impressive scholarship. He doesn't respond to our massive computer-enabled administrative capabilities. He responds to the prayers of his people, united in one accord, fervently. It's easy to gripe about the lack of prayer in the church and feel guilty about it, but here at our church, a much better approach would be to promote, which I'm about to do now shamelessly, the prayer seminar that's coming up next month. This is a great seminar, and I know that because it's based on one of the most helpful and one of the most influential books on prayer in recent memory. It's based on a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. If you're feeling inadequate in your prayer life and you're willing to expend minimal time and resources, sign up for the conference. There's sign-ups available. You can call the church office. There's sign-ups at the Welcome Center. Uh, if you'd rather just work it so we can be good hosts, that's great. But please pray about whether or not this is something God has for you. It's really important to say, you know what, prayer is a weakness in my spiritual life, so I'm going to spend, you know, four hours, five hours, six hours, whatever it is, in a conference listening to someone talk about prayer from the Scriptures. Okay, for the rest of the text, Luke devotes himself to recording the first real problem or the first real challenge that the apostles encounter as they seek to do what they want, what Jesus wants them to do. And the problem is very basic, and that is, what do we do to replace Judas, who betrayed Christ and who killed himself? Okay? And of course, that question leads to many others, doesn't it? The most obvious one is, why replace Judas at all? I mean, what's wrong with having 11 apostles? Surely God wasn't in heaven saying, I'm sorry, I just can't pull off this worldwide mission with, with 11. I need 12, so get somebody else. Does God really need 12? Well, he could do it with one or none if he was so inclined. So what's the big deal about 12 instead of 11? Why, why the need for this? Well, one clue is found in places like Matthew 19.28. There Jesus says to his 12 disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Fascinating text. Now the question, of course, in light of this and other New Testament texts that mention the 12 tribes of Israel, and there are a few, is what's the relationship between the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles? Because clearly Jesus says, sees one right here. It's right here. So, those kind of questions about the relationship between the 12 apostles and Old Testament national ethnic Israel, they can get a little complicated and controversial. So let's just say this. The New Testament does not teach, as some, I think, wrongly claim, that the church just simply cancels out or replaces Old Testament ethnic Israel, the Jews. Revelation 21 tells us that the name of the 12 Israelite tribes are on the gates of the heavenly city. And Paul tells us in Romans 11:23 that in the end, all Israel 
will be saved. And in the context, he's talking about national, ethnic Israel. That is, there's going to be one final and massive ingathering of the ethnic Jews who, as a group, will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and accept him as their Savior. All that's true. But on the other hand, the New Testament teaches that ultimately there is one people of God, not two, and the people of God are rooted not in the covenant of Moses, they're rooted in Jesus Christ who creates this new humanity we saw in Ephesians. They're rooted in Jesus Christ, they're rooted in the gospel message preached by the apostles. And this is what Paul means when he says in places like Ephesians 2.20, speaking of the church, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay? The New Testament teaches that the church is made up of the true children of Abraham, the true Israel to which Old Testament Ethnic Israel pointed to. Ethnic Jews who trust in Jesus do not remain in their own little separate ethnic grouping. They join the church of Christ. The New Testament church fulfills the Old Testament hopes and purposes and most of the promises given to ethnic national Israel. And Paul implies this in places like Galatians 6.16 when he calls the church the Israel of God. He calls the church the Israel of God. So here in Acts 1, the reason the apostles feel a need to have 12 in their company is because they knew all of that. They understood that the church is directly connected to and is the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel, which was made up of 12 tribes. So the apostles understood that they represented these 12 tribes in this newly reconstituted spiritual Israel, which is the church. So in order for God's plan for the church to be fulfilled, as this reconstituted spiritual Israel, there has to be 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes. Another set of questions that this push to replace Judas raises is, were the apostles just wrong here? Were the apostles misunderstanding their mission? I mean, wasn't Paul the 12th apostle? Weren't they getting ahead of what God was wanting to do when they named Matthias as an apostle? People who advance this theory, and there are many of them, are critical of the apostles' selection process here. Their means of finding God's will, I'm taking on this attitude, their means of finding God's will is to cast lots. Well, for many people, that seems just a bit primitive. I mean, where else in the New Testament do people cast lots? Some claim Peter's use of Scripture in his sermon here, he uses Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, would say, no, he blew it. It's not a very good use of text. Okay, I must tell you that most of the best New Testament scholars soundly reject that view. They argue that because the Holy Spirit has not yet come, casting lots is actually quite an appropriate way to find God's will. It's tried and true in the Old Testament, and this is kind of in that bridge period between the Old and New, because the Spirit hasn't come. They seem to imply that Paul is in a unique category of an apostle, and they steadfastly maintain that these quotations from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 that Andy read are actually very well used. In the midst of this process, Peter lists qualifications for what it is to be an apostle. 
This is the criteria they use to judge who's going to be the next one in verses 21 and 22. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So Peter says that the new apostle must have been with them all the time from the baptism three years earlier. And that clearly excludes someone like Paul, who during all of that time was a practicing Pharisee. And it's on this basis that they cast lots, and they finally come up with Matthias as the 12th apostle. He's chosen over Joseph called Barsabbas, who is instantly immortalized in Bible trivia. As it relates to Matthias, another reason some people believe the apostles got ahead of God here is because once Matthias is named an apostle, you never hear from him again. You don't get it. This is Matthias' big moment right here. This is it. And tradition says he preached in Macedonia and Ethiopia, but there's no real authority behind any of that. Whether Matthias was God's choice or not, ultimately, it's not an important issue, frankly, because some of the indisputably authentic apostles mentioned in verse 13, we never hear from them again either. I mean, it is really an amazing fact of the New Testament that though you hear an awful lot about Peter and James and John in the New Testament, James, the first martyr of the church, you hear next to nothing about many of the rest of these apostles. Instead, Paul, who's not part of this 11, he dominates the second half of Acts. He writes half the New Testament. And other non-apostolic people like Stephen and Philip and Timothy, they're mentioned with some frequency. But whatever happened to Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel? What about Judas, the son of James, or Simon the Zealot? These men, whose names are on the foundation stones around the city of God, according to Revelation 21, basically just vanished from church history after this mention in Acts chapter 1. So why these men in some ways are so important and in other ways are basically anonymous, is something we're just left to speculate about. It's evidently one of the secret things of God from Deuteronomy 29, 29 that we simply can't know in this life. So what remains of this text, which also has some controversy attached to it, is in verses 16 to 19, where Peter speaks of Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. It would make sense for anything related to Judas to kind of have some uh, controversy attached to it. Uh, the death of Judas, obviously, is what prompts all of this, this replacement for the betrayer. Let's find out what Peter says about the betrayer in this little mini-sermon he gives in the upper room. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in its own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. This is interesting because it gives us some details, additional details, and insight into Judas and, and what happened to him. The controversy comes when you compare this text about Judas with Matthew's account of Judas and what he records happened to him. 
And we want to go into this comparison just a little bit, not for some sort of academic exercise. There's a point to this that I want to really encourage us. We want to go into these two accounts just for the next five minutes because this is just the kind of alleged contradiction that skeptics point to in order to undermine our confidence in the Word of God. Many of you have had conversations like this. So for the sake of building our confidence in the Word of God, that's the purpose here, let's do a quick comparison with Matthew's version. He has it in chapter 27 of his Gospel. And then let's see how these accounts can harmonize. Verse 3, this is Matthew. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field is a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sum of Israel, sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Okay, so the alleged points of contradiction very quickly are, in Matthew, Judas shows remorse, and in some obviously incomplete way, he repents. Luke says nothing about this in Acts. In Matthew, the chief priests buy the field. In Acts, Judas buys the field. In Matthew, the field is called blood field, since it was purchased with blood money. In Acts, it's called the field of blood, because Judas falls and his bowels burst out in the field. In Matthew, Judas hangs himself. In Acts, he falls and basically, sorry, he explodes. Finally, we know from the Old Testament text cited by the author, Matthew sees the story of Judas fulfilling accounts in Jeremiah and even Zechariah. In Acts, Peter's tying this all to Acts. He's tying it all to the Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Well, many of those differences, when we come against these, we have to think most of those differences are explained the same way that most differences in how biblical events are recorded when the event is recorded by multiple authors. The explanations are generally the same when you see this kind of thing happening in the Bible. When God repeats the same event from the perspective of two or more different authors, it's mostly because he wants to bring out different truths rooted in the author's different priorities and emphases, the things that he feels led by the Holy Spirit to bring out. For instance, with these stories about Judas, Matthew in his gospel and Luke in the book of Acts have two very different theological agendas. And the accounts they give reflect what God has burdened them to write about. Matthew's account reflects his burden to demonstrate the horror of remorse that people who are faithless to God will experience. Remember, Matthew is also a Jew, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And one of the things he does every chance he gets is he writes to critique the Jewish leadership. And so he includes that in this. Their absolutely inhuman treatment of Judas. Matthew also wants to show Jesus as the rejected, betrayed, and innocent shepherd. 
That's throughout his gospel. And again, as someone writing to Jews, he also seeks to present Judas as the fulfillment of the Old Testament types seen in people like Absalom and Ahithophel. Who were those? They were two people. Absalom was the son of David. Ahithophel was the counselor of David. And they both betrayed King David. And they both hung. Okay, that's a Jewish audience. They'd pick up on that. Now those and other similar theological priorities help shape all of Matthew's gospel. And so when he records this about Judas, it's going to reflect what he's saying. That is his inspired perspective, and that determines the way that he gives his gospel account. He doesn't fabricate any details, but the details he provides support the points that he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uniquely emphasizes. Luke's purpose in Acts is very different than Matthew's. Luke's a historian. He seeks to explain why was there this gap in the ranks of the apostles for a season when everybody knew about Judas? That's where he is. Matthew doesn't care about that because he's writing before the resurrection and the Great Commission. That's not a relevant question for them. A big burden of Luke's account throughout the book of Acts is to emphasize when bad things or evil things happen, that does not derail God's sovereign purposes. You see that over and over and over, and Judas is exhibit A, first up. Luke reveals that the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus didn't impact the number of ministries or apostles a replacement is easily found. Luke wants us to see that it was not a mistake for Jesus to choose Judas. John tells us he's the son of perdition. He calls him a devil, Jesus does. It was God's will for Judas to do what Judas did. Finally, Luke wants to highlight the clear and harsh judgment of Judas by God. Now, we see the accounts of judgment in both texts, unmistakably, but it's really grisly in Acts. Matthew reports, of course, that Judas hangs himself. That certainly speaks of the judgment of God. But, again, his other purpose is to show that Judas is the fulfillment of David's son Absalom and his counselor Ahithophel, so you have a hanging. In the gruesome details that Luke brings out in Acts, he doesn't mention hanging. But knowing that he did hang himself, Luke's account implies that he was left hanging in that tree. And that's the curse of God, according to Deuteronomy, when you're left hanging in a tree. Luke's account, when combined with Matthew's, implies that Judas' body was hanging long enough for his corpse to swell. And subsequently, when the rope broke and he fell, his decomposing body burst open on the ground and sprayed all over the place. Luke wants us to see that for those who oppose God, the hideous wrath of God is their destiny. That's one of his emphasis throughout the book of Acts. And so what happens to Judas's body clearly displays God's wrath in a very grisly judgment. Luke doesn't mention the interaction between Judas and the chief priest, not because he doesn't know about it, but because his focus is not on the corrupt Jewish leaders, but on the terrible fate that Judas suffered in punishment for his betrayal. The different accounts as to who purchased the field are also easy enough to harmonize. Though the chief priests made the purchase, they used Judas's money. 
And in that sense, both had a hand in acquiring the field, though Judas did so, obviously, unknowingly. The two different names of the field, very similar to one another. Blood field, field of blood. You're trying to tell me people said, I'm sorry, that's field of blood, not blood field. I mean, come, come on, they knew. They used both of them interchangeably. That's the way we are. We know this from our own locale. We have a local beach called the Tourist Beach and something else. A name that's actually more familiar to locals. Both are valid ways of referring to the place, even though one is a bit of an unsavory designation. The point is simply that if you don't come to this text predisposed to see contradictions, these two accounts harmonize just fine. Most of the differences reside in the fact that you have two different authors with two different purposes who are using different aspects of the same event to make different points. As we close, let's just think about one of those points that Luke emphasizes as we saw his treatment of Jesus and that is, or Judas, and that is when bad things, when evil things happen in our lives, God uses them not to derail his sovereign purposes for our lives, but to fulfill them. Not to derail them, but to fulfill them. So often we have the plan, we have it in our mind, we know exactly where we're going and, we're go and then train wreck happens, whatever it is in circumstance. And it's easy at that moment to believe, I guess God's been derailed now. No, the train wreck is part of God's plan. It's all part and parcel. We see this about the greatest sin in the world, which is, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter says this in his later sermon in Acts 2.23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You can't miss the fact that the greatest sin in human history, the brutal and lawless killing of the only innocent man who ever drew breath, was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is sovereignly controlling all things, including things that are unjust and unlawful and evil, and he seeks to use them for our good. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe it? I don't mean do we check it off as a box, yeah, theologically I can, I mean, do we believe that? Some of you are suffering because maybe it was your own sin, or maybe it was the sin of somebody else, or maybe it was nobody's sin. It just life happens sometimes. Please know this, when God is writing the story, our suffering is not the end of the account. It's folded right into it. God is sovereign over even the painful and evil things in our lives, self-inflicted or otherwise, and he wants to use them for his glory and for our joy. If you're a believer, no matter how much suffering is in your experience, you can trust him to write the story for your life with a happy ending and a lot of endings before you get to the final end that are good. Joseph says to his brother, who had sinned grievously against him, done horrible things against him, he says in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The evil things in your life, God means them for good. Do we believe that? That's so comforting to know that he's sovereign over the tough stuff, over the evil stuff, over the worst of stuff. That's our hope. May God give us the grace to believe that about our lives for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for Jesus. God, we thank you for the example that we see 
in the book of Acts again and again and again where you do some amazing things, some world-shaping things, things that to this day we're still impacted by. And you begin them with your, your people praying. God, I pray for myself. I pray for all of us that our prayer lives would grow and thrive and develop, that we would develop the kind of walk with you that we would not think about doing even the smallest thing without crying out to you, I can't do this. Because God, although we can do the act itself, we can't do it in such a way that honors you if we're not acting in faith. That which is not of faith is sin. And so God, we need you to help us. And Father, whether that's the seminar or something else, I pray that you would make this church a house of prayer. Father, for those who are suffering, whatever it is they're going through, I pray that you would help them to see that though you are never the author of sin, your hand is bigger than sin, and you are sovereign over it. And you're working good in the midst of it. God, help us to believe that so that Jesus Christ might be honored and we might be able to worship you even in the midst of very difficult times. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.